So hi, welcome to the August podcast. Here with Steve, as always. Steve, I think we've got to start off this week by looking at the elephant in the room, which is the negative yield curve, which is now coming to being in the UK and the US. I know they're credited with predicting oncoming recessions, and generally, perhaps they've predicted 10 of the last four recessions that we've seen. So it's not always the case. But in the context of where we are today, what do you think the consequences are of the onset of an inverted yield curve? Either the inverted yield curve is forecasting or predicting the recession, or it isn't. And that sounds... But the important point there is, in my mind at least, there is a question mark about the veracity of an inverted yield curve. So you'll often hear it quoted that the yield curve has predicted every single one of the post-war recessions. That's true. It's got a very good track record in the post-war period. So normally, so if the, the difference between the three-month rate and the 10-year rate is negative or the difference between the two-year rate and the 10 year rate is negative, that has been a reasonably reliable predictor of recessions in the post-war period. Actually, the three-month, ten-year rate is the one with the best track record, although just the fact that it inverts is not the predictor. It has to sort of invert for an average of 90 days, and at that point, you've got a really good predictor of recessions. So we press the track record back beyond Second World War, extend it back to the turn of the century then it's got a less good track record. But it is certainly something that concerns us. It's certainly something that we're paying very close attention to. We're not dismissing it. It's about the best predictor of recessions that we could hope to have. And obviously, if there's a recession, then that's not going to be a particularly pleasant period for investors in uh, risky assets like high-yield bonds or equities. So it's certainly something we're alive to, certainly something that we're monitoring closely. But there is a slightly cloudy edge to all of this, and that is what's going on with modern central banks. So throughout most of the period, in the post-war period, we've had positive interest rates. And those positive interest rates define the economic history since before uh, just the most recent couple of years. And right now, what we've got is about a quarter of the world's listed fixed income securities are now yielding less than zero. So that's government bonds right out beyond 10 years in France, in Germany, in Switzerland, and in no surprises in Japan. And, and the reason we've got negative rates in those jurisdictions is because the central banks are encouraging very low interest rates. So the difference between the interest rate environment today and the interest rate environment that has pertained since the Second World War is that central banks today are much more heavily involved in manipulating interest rates, either as part of their quantitative easing programs or often underlooked element of modern monetary policy is forward guidance. So the the central banks are are not just buying bonds, they're saying that they're not going to stop buying bonds for a long time and they're not going to raise interest rates for a long time. And then on top of that, we've got periods, we're in a period of very low inflation. We're different in the UK. The UK is the odd one out in all of this. We've got slightly higher inflation or at least We've got target inflation, but everywhere else in Japan, they're struggling to get inflation anywhere near target. In Europe, it's the same. And in America, the the sort of main rate of inflation that the Fed watches out for has been subdued. And, you know, inflation has been subdued for 10 years or so now. This is not a a near-term phenomenon. So there are some things that are going on today that make me slightly skeptical 
about whether or not a negative yield curve really does have the predictive power that it once had. I mean, this predictive power, it's, it's, it's not that a negative yield curve causes a recession. There are some people that believe that, but they're a sort of minority amongst the academic literature. So the, 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 I think the consensus is that a negative yield curve doesn't create a recession. It is simply a prediction of a recession. And that kind of makes sense because during a recession, you would expect interest rates to come down and you would because inflation comes down too during a recession. So there's no need for high interest rates. And then the central bank step in to try and stimulate the economy. So that, that all kind of sticks together and, and makes sense. But the thing that gives any market-based system its predictive power is the sort of the wisdom of crowds. It's the aggregated bets of everybody that's involved. Now, so long as you've got sort of a relatively unhomogeneous, you know, a relatively mixed bunch of people all making those bets, all with different ideas and all with different elements of information available to them, then you get a reasonably efficient market. But right now, what we've got is the dominant player in the bond market being the central bank. So I, I just wonder whether, because the makeup of who's buying bonds these days has altered so dramatically, I, I wonder whether that market really retains its predictive power. So, so there's certainly a question mark in my mind uh, between an inverted yield curve and a recession at this moment in time. But it's just because it does have a really good track record, and there are some things in the economic data that are concerning, then it's something that we have to pay close attention to. I have to also say is that we know that recessions happen and they're very difficult to predict. And we know that stock market declines happen. So we've structured the portfolios with this in mind to start off with. So we, we don't have portfolios that we think will do well if, as long as we don't get a recession. So we're not sort of optimized for a period of time that doesn't contain a recession. So, you know, if, if we get runaway bull markets, best might notice that our portfolios don't gain quite as much as some of the riskier portfolios that are available out there. And that's because we hedge for eventualities like large declines in stock markets and things like that. If we get a recession, I'm reasonably comfortable with the position that we're holding. If we were more convinced a recession was going to happen, then we might take steps to improve our hedging for that kind of environment. But if, if we miss out on forecasting a recession, I'm still reasonably comfortable that we've got a position that, that can withstand the worst of those kind of conditions. You touched on the, our method of portfolio construction and diversification. I think everybody totally gets it that a balanced portfolio has to be balanced, and that means it must include fixed interest and vice versa for inequities. But when you get to such extreme yields and incredibly low yields, and what 10-year in the UK is, it's still just north of half percent or something, but it's very low. How much lower can it go? And because it's so far to the to the low end of the spectrum, does that mean that fixed interest has lost much of its ability to provide balance in portfolio construction? Is our model broken? No, no. I mean, like the, the market, the, the model is, is certainly not broken. So the first part of that question was was how low can yields go? Well, they can go very low. So um, the 10-year Swiss government bond is uh, around about uh, is negative to the tune of about 100 basis points. The German 10-year yield is, is is around about 60 basis points negative. Uh, even the French yield is now negative. So uh, how low could the 10-year gilt go? I mean, the 10-year gilt could go negative. The, the U.S. Treasury, which is yielding closer to 200 basis points. That could even go negative at some stage. And the reason they can go negative is that really what's important in the fixed income market is, is relative 
the difference between interest rates more important than, say, mm. than the actual yield. Now, I, that's not to say that negative interest rates are without their problems. I actually think that we don't fully understand the problems that are associated with negative interest rates given our banking system. Our banking system is, is really built on, on, on a notion of positive interest rates. We've actually had negative real interest rates for quite some time. So that, those are sort of inflation-adjusted interest rates. Those have been negative for a while. So it's not an entirely new phenomenon. We've had negative interest rates for a long time in Japan. There isn't a flaw in all of this. And the closer that we get to zero interest rates, if you, so if you buy a, a normal government bond, the closer you get to zero interest rates, and then once you get into negative interest rates, that doesn't diminish the ability for bond prices to go up. So bond prices go in the opposite direction of interest rates. So if interest rates go down, even if they're going from negative 50 to negative 60, that is still interest rates going down, then bond prices will go up in values. It's really the increase in bond prices that de delivers the diversification benefit for us inside the portfolios, and quite specifically, we're talking about government bonds in this instance. And actually, yeah. the, the closer a yield goes to, to zero, the more sensitive prices are to, to interest rate changes. So a bond that's yielding 4% going down to 3% will give you an increase in, in price, but a bond that goes down from 1% to half a percent will give you almost the same, you know, it's not... You'd have to do the, the, the calculation. It's quite a com calculate, complicated calculation. But <clears throat> the, the lower interest rates go, the less you need a change in interest rate to give you a bigger increase in bond price. So uh, people might have heard of, of duration. If anybody's done any, any slightly more complicated bond exams, then convexity is the, is, is the phrase that, that describes all of this. But it's so... No, there, is, there isn't a natural limit, and lower and lower interest rates do not diminish the diversification benefits from, from government bonds in particular. How low can they go? They can go much lower than they are today. Will they retain the diversification benefits? Yes, they will. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll always be comfortable about holding government bonds. There is a, there is a point at which we do think twice about all of this. And when policymakers are thinking about this and they're, they're thinking, oh, we're up the creek without a paddle here, we need to go negative or more negative on our interest rates. Is which that a which policy is what that, the Europeans are about to do, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and is that a policy that's working or has worked thus far? Might their appetite yeah. to do such a thing diminish because perhaps it hasn't had the desired effect? Yeah, I mean, the, the obvious example is, is Japan, where they've been trying to stimulate inflation for two decades or so. I mean, to be fair, the, the, the Bank of Japan has only really been very, very active in this regard since uh, Shinzo Abe's landslide election, so it's, it's, which is in the sort of last four or five years. So, uh, and it's also true to say that the Bank of Japan has thrown the kitchen sink at all of this. It's, you know, its quantitative easing program is, is huge. It's, uh, it, it isn't just a quantitative easing program. It's what they call a quantitative and qualitative easing program. So, not only do they buy government bonds, they buy uh, uh, REITs and they buy uh, equities. They buy ETFs, which are just a sort of basket of, of, of equities that conform to, you know, so they're, they're sort of social governance, uh, corporate governance ETFs. So, um, so they're also buying share, uh, shares and, you know, much riskier assets and corporate bonds and things like that. Uh, and it hasn't had the desired effect. But more worrying, really, is that it didn't have the desired effect 
when uh, inflation was positive elsewhere. And what we've got now is a fairly, fairly global phenomenon of uh, suppressed inflation rates. I mean, the reason the interest rates are so low is because the central banks are trying to stimulate some inflation of some kind. There, there, there used to be a point in time when everybody thought that governments could just easily stimulate inflation, but I, I think that's been quite comprehensively debunked. The Japanese have been very, very desperate, uh, very keen to stimulate inflation and have never managed to do so. The same is sort of true in, in, in Europe too. Uh, uh, the harmonized index of consumer prices is has, has been suppressed well below the 2% level for quite some time. And the reason the European Central Bank engaged in their QE program was twofold. One, to try and save the, the government bond market in, in Europe, uh, to ultimately to save the euro. But as a consequence of all of that, they want to stimulate some inflation. And the reason they're going to buy bonds again, uh, possibly at the next meeting, or they're going to drive interest rates even more negative, is, is precisely because they want to stimulate inflation. So I suppose the answer to the question is I don't know. I don't know how effective the European Central Bank is going to be in stimulated inflation. It's, it's certainly true that the Japanese tried more, way more than the European Central Bank have done. They've really been really imaginative. And like I said, thrown the kitchen sink at it and they haven't managed to stimulate inflation. So um, so I, 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 I'm not sure whether it's going to be enough. I mean, like I said, inflation has been low right across the Western world and uh, and also, you know, even in places like China where you would expect reasonably high inflation. Uh, inflation has been relatively subdued there too. So I don't know how effective it's going to be. Uh, but what I do know is that once you, you know, uh, Mario Draghi's very famous big bazooka had a relatively large impact on, on the market uh, for bonds and also helped to buoy up the euro. But really that was because it was a, it was a big ticket announcement once you've pulled out a big bazooka uh, and you've fired it off and everybody's impressed, what, what then do you do uh, to impress people after that? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty tough ask. So, and even you know, during the, the, the meeting before the last one, they said they were quite likely to engage in more stimulus of some kind. And actually the euro went up because the market was slightly disappointed in the, uh, in the extent and the, and the dovishness that they came out with. So you know, it, it, to, to have a real impact, the ECB is going to have to do something, say something really quite spectacular. And I, you know, like I said, once you pulled out a big bazooka, you, you're pretty, I don't know what would be next, you know. I was at the airport last week and I went past the uh, the big pirate ship, which they called the Bureau de Change. And they were actually uh, <laughs> selling um, 78 um, euro cents for one pound. Um, uh-huh. No longer looking at the parenty one to one, they were going for. 0.78 of a euro to a pound. Um, <laughs> obviously, that's just extortion. It shouldn't be allowed. But what should our response be to sterling's weakness and, and the potential that we could get to parity, sort of one-for-one <coughs> sterling rates against the major currencies? Should we be looking to increase overseas holdings? Should we be looking to maybe do something in a currency that does look stronger, perhaps like the yen? What do you think? So we've already got exposure to overseas currencies. In, during the portfolio construction process, one of the one of the risks that we identify is is, is inflation risk, high inflation. So people think that high inflation is the price of things going up, but really a better way to think of it is is really the value of the currency going down. So one of the reasons we have overseas assets in our portfolio, and specifically we have unhedged overseas assets in our portfolio, is precisely to guard against 
uh, some of the effects of a diminishing currency. So again, it is true to say that this is a risk that's already hedged in the, in the portfolio to some extent by well by not hedging overseas currencies. So the pound going down is a, is a pretty positive thing for the for the portfolios. You know, to say all the overseas assets that we have get revalued. You know, whatever the pound goes down by, they get revalued up by. So there's a direct impact there. Uh, and also, you know, things like FTSE 100 stocks and, and even some of the uh, some of the higher end of the FTSE 250 have earnings that are in dollars or, 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 or euros and uh, to some extent yen as well. So they get revalued up as well. So we're already in that position. We really, sterling may well go through a pretty pretty tricky patch from here on in and not necessarily because of a hard Brexit. So I, I suspect that a a reasonable amount of the the chaos and the and and the issues that will surround a no deal Brexit. I, I, I mean, there is still further for the pound to fall if that comes about. Um, I don't think the market fully reflects the likelihood of a of a no deal Brexit. So there is a wee bit more to fall on that regard. But the and and I don't regard that level of decline in the pound as particularly damaging. What it will do is stimulate inflation in the short term. We might have a short period of uh, above-target inflation. But just as we had a period of above-target infl- inflation, you know, last time the, the pound went down more after 2007 than it did during this period. So mm-hmm. we've actually had a, you know, a good model for a big decline in, in, in the pound came as the, in the financial crisis because we had a hugely oversight banking system back then, and of course it was a banking crisis. So the pound was really uh, was really shunned in the uh, foreign exchange markets, and we lost about 20%, 25% of our trade weighted value. So, and what happened in that immediate aftermath was that inflation went higher. Does anybody remember sort of RPI going high to, to 5% back at the time during 2007? So, uh, and the Bank of England's response was to reduce interest rates. At the moment, you've got Mark Carney suggesting that it's just as likely that we raise interest rates that we, than, than we decrease them. I think that's nonsense. The chances that the Bank of England raise interest rates uh, in the event of a no-deal Brexit to try and defend the pound is just, it's just nonsense. That's for the birds. It's just not how our system operates these days. A decline in the pound is not necessarily a bad thing, albeit that holidays are more expensive, and we might see some above-target inflation in the shops and things like that. That's... That's a sort of natural consequence, but that actually has some pretty positive economic benefits in the in the in the medium term in terms of you know it will alter our trade balance and things like that. So that there are some there are quite a lot of positives from an economic perspective that come from a lower pound. So it's not just it's not not necessarily bad news at all. Where we start to get slightly more speculative in terms of the extent to which the pound could decline, and you know beyond parity with the euro and towards parity, maybe even beyond parity with the dollar as well, is on the, on the back of parliamentary shenanigans. So a, a vote of no confidence, which seems pretty likely, very early in uh, when, when Parliament comes back from the summer break, looks like a vote of no confidence quite likely there. That, that's going to hamper the pound. If the result of that no confidence is, vote is, is, is that it, um, it, it does look like a general election is likely then that'll harm the pound further. And mostly that'll harm the pound because the, the bookies' favourite outcome for a general election is no overall majority. So what we might have is a sort of speculation around about Brexit. We could even have a hard Brexit uh, and a general election called the day after. So the market, you know, the currency exchange markets have got to deal with 
not only a, a hard Brexit, uh, but they've also got to deal with the potential for a, a hung parliament. That's that's where we get you know really speculative in terms of the extent to which the pound could decline during that period. But also, I, I think any any larger decline in the pound then uh, would quickly disappear if so we've got a Tory majority. Um, but like I said, the bookies are not really pricing a, a Tory majority very favourably. Of all the potential majorities, so let's say a Labour, the chances that we have a a Corbyn-led majority Labour government are quite unlikely in the grand scheme of things, whereas a, a Tory majority is less unlikely. But the, the most likely outcome, according to the bookies, is for, a, is for no majority. And, and, and that's just... You know, even more uncertainty as, as far as the uh, as far as international investors are concerned. So the pound isn't going to do brilliantly well in that in, in that period. So, yeah, watch the space on that. Um, we're reasonably relaxed about it uh, because, like I said, the portfolios will will certainly benefit. Whether we want to speculate more on that and take an active position, but I would certainly be tempted to take a more active position had we not already had some good exposure to to that kind of event, we, we might be inclined to take more positive action on that. But I, I'm reasonably comfortable where we are. And, and it's a very short-term issue. You know, it's, it's a sort of four or five-month issue in front of us, whereas the kind of things that we react to are more are likely to last for a longer period of time, if you see what I mean. So we, we, we're sort of best if we react to events that, that are sort of reasonably... Uh, long in their duration, and, and uh, yeah. that's where we're better off making. Making this is this is a, it's too binary, too big a bet in in one one direction or the other. Like I said, from a construction perspective, we are we're comfortable in terms of the portfolios benefiting from this, but also being reasonably protected if things go against. I've got some slides I'll be posting up this week of the components of one of our balanced portfolios. Typically, over the last two weeks since equity started sliding. Balanced portfolios seem to be down by around about one percent, maybe one and a quarter percent, um, if we take into account last night as well. And that's that's been made up of all of the equity classes falling in value, and all of the fixed interest classes rising in value. So, yeah, fixed interest has been doing what it was designed to do. Okay, right. So we better wind up now. So we've looked at the inverted yield curve and. It definitely can herald a recession, but it's by no means certain that it's going to. Steve's highlighted a number of reasons why current conditions might might be different to those we've historically seen. We've seen that bonds yields have fallen sharply, values have risen, but they're not necessarily anywhere near the maximum amount of, of fall in yields that we can see because, of course, um, interest rates can go negative. So there's still still a good building block for us to use in portfolios going forwards. And finally, just please remember, if you're going on holiday in the next few weeks, don't wait till you get to the airport before you buy your currencies. Okay, right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Um, We'll do all this again and release the next podcast. Around about the 12th of October, it will be released. So watch out for it coming then. Thanks. Bye.